0: We want to talk about why there's so much compromise going on in the church. And one of the reasons is really that there are a lot of professors, even at Christian universities, that are trying to use the scriptures to say that there's a contradiction in the scriptures, to use the scriptures to say the earth is millions of years old. Bottom line is, it really doesn't work. But it does sound very tricky. It sounds pretty convincing if you don't know your Bibles and you're not operating on faith. Of the word of God as your starting foundation... ...rather than operating on faith that men know more than God. You see, there is a lot of compromise going on in these churches. And Christians today are making their own gods... ...a God that suits their own desires... If they want to smoke, they can justify it. If they want to drink, they can justify it. If they want to do drugs, they can justify it. It doesn't make any difference what we do. We can justify it if we form and fashion a God to fit our own needs. If we want to believe in millions of years, we can justify it. We can make it biblical. That's the society we live in today. But Christianity has become more democratic. You know, a majority rules. If a majority uh, of you know, people can get on my side to believe things, then I'll believe that too. But that's not what God's Word is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and always. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And so we need to go to the Word of God. We need to look at what the Word of God says because when we take something in Genesis and we twist it around to fit our own desires, what happens is later on you're going to see some kind of contradiction maybe in the New Testament or later in the Old Testament, usually in the New Testament. Because it all points to the Gospel, and you're going to see that there's some drastic change, drastic problem that comes about when we twist the Scriptures in Genesis. And if you've heard me speak on why creation is important, I tell you that I I don't think there's a single doctrine out there that I can't support from the book of Genesis. It all starts there, and it all points to Jesus. Jesus. That's why creation is so important. It's not about being right on the scientific aisle. It's about right in the Gospels. It's about being right, the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Trusting Him. Having faith in Him over having faith in man who is fallible. And in most cases with those that are going against it, ungodly. But in these cases, I do believe there are many Christians in these Christian universities who believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior, but are trying to have a foot in both worlds, in God's Word and in the world. And so they try and compromise and mix together. But what happens then, as I said, is the Bible falls apart. You know, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning. Here's the question is, when is the beginning? Because, you know, most people will say, yeah, especially those Christians. And, and for the most part today, I'm going to be talking about compromising Christians, not evolutionists and atheists, okay? But for these compromising Christians, what we see is they will say, yeah, I believe in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, but when is the beginning? If you start getting very specific about when the beginning is, you're going to find out that you aren't on the same page with many of these Christians. How old is the earth? When was the beginning is the question. Well, you know, Jesus answers that for us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He says this, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, when was the beginning? Well, when God made male and female. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, by the way. He defines what a marriage is supposed to be there. Yeah, you see, the beginning is when God made Adam and Eve. He didn't say, haven't you read, He which made them millions of years after the beginning? Or a long time after the beginning? He defines when the beginning is. But many people out there are saying the earth was here for millions and billions of years, then God put Adam and Eve on the earth. Some say, then God put the spirit of man into an ape, and it became a human being, ultimately. But that doesn't fit with Jesus' own words here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Adam is a picture of Jesus Christ, a foreshadowing of him. The first Adam, the second Adam is Jesus. The first Adam is Adam. But what we see is that the first person on earth is indeed Adam, a real historical person. Many of my Catholic friends don't believe that Adam and Eve were real people, but it's more of a metaphor to, you know, a moral of the story kind of thing. No, Jesus isn't quoting a metaphor. You know, these are real people that Jesus believed walked the earth, and he uses them to teach us examples. We have other people here like Jacques Monod, a Nobel Prize winner in biology, when commenting on theistic evolution which is basically trying to tie God into evolution, or vice versa, trying to tie evolution into your Christianity. He says natural selection is the blindest and most cruel way of evolving new species. And more and more complex and refined organisms, the struggle for life and elimination of the weakest is a horrible process against which our whole modern ethics revolts. An ideal society is a non-selective society, one where the weak is protected, which is exactly the reverse of the so-called natural law. And he goes on to say, I am surprised that a Christian would defend the idea that this is the process which God, more or less, set up in order to have evolution. Now, Even, even this atheist is basically saying, I'm surprised that any Christian would believe this because it's inconsistent with the way God works. For, for human beings to evolve through death, disease, and suffering, that is inconsistent with a loving God. They say, why is there death, disease, and suffering if God is such a loving God? Well, it's very simple. It's called sin. But if there's no Adam and Eve, then there's no sin that caused death, disease, and suffering, by the way. The only way we can answer why death, disease, and suffering is in this world is if there was a literal Adam and Eve who fell into literal sin bringing it about. That's not God's fault, that's man's fault. But he realizes that for us to say that God used evolution as a means of bringing us about where we are today is cruel. And survival of the fittest, you know, death to the weakest, that's not a godly character. Deuteronomy 32, four says he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. God, his work is perfect. It's not a chance, you know, trial and error thing. Oh, this is really weak, hopefully it'll get better, because that's what evolution would teach. It starts out simple, it increases to complex. No, God started out complex, sin has made it more simple and weak. I mean, if, I, if there was a picture, uh, you know, an artist drew a picture, and it really stunk, what would you think of that artist? You'd think he was a terrible artist. Likewise, if God's creation that he made for Adam and Eve initially, if it was an ugly creation, a weak creation, a diseased creation, what would that say about God? It would not reflect, you know, a, a good God, would it? No. God doesn't make mistakes, He made all things perfect. And that's why he said it was very good. Hebrews 11.3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It is by faith. And that's what I want to challenge you with today. If you have to reason out Christianity, you will never be a Christian because you cannot understand everything God did, how he did it, why he did it, because if you could, it would make you God. We serve a God that is so big, so grand, so wonderful that there's no way we can wrap our pea brains around him. It would be a very small God that we could figure out. And so, yes, it is by faith that you must believe the word of God. It's not blind faith. He's given us so much evidence to support it. Science supports the Bible. History supports the Bible. Archaeology supports the Bible. 25,000 archaeological sites. So clearly, it is not a matter of blind faith. And I know evolutionists would like, oh yeah, see, he admitted it. It's by faith he has to believe it. But here's the thing. I'm big enough to admit that I have faith. They're not big enough to admit they have faith. But they do. Everybody has faith. It's just a matter of which faith is best faith to have faith in. They have faith, believe me, because they have to believe things that science goes against. The origin of life. There's a law of science that says life can't come about by, you know, non-life, but yet they say it happened once. Second law of thermodynamics, they say, but it happens, it, it goes against things. You know, you can't have order coming from disorder. They have faith. All over the place. The atomic particle that blew up, where did it come from? It came from nothing. Well, a law of science says it can't happen. Everybody has faith. Their faith, is not, it's blind faith. It is not backed by archaeology, science, history. But the Bible is. And so you won't get all your answers here tonight, I'm sure of that, because there's so, to so many. Satan is out there trying to devour you. But I hope that you will have enough to say, you know what, I've got enough to go on here that I know that I can trust God. I can trust His Word. And there is nothing that is going to shake that foundation. Choose this day whom you will follow. But as for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. And I hope and pray that that's what you will do here tonight. In Exodus 20, verse 11, it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He didn't do it over millions of years. He says, in six days, I made everything. And then I was done. I was finished. Because it says in Exodus 20, verse 11, God rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The seventh day, it was done. He was, his work was over. But many Christians out there, compromising Christians, say, well, God is still creating. That's what evolution would mean, by the way. No, he's not. Hebrews 4.3 says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. His works were finished. There is no more creating going on. Oh, they're sustaining and holding together, as Colossians and Hebrews tells us. But the creation work is done. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Many other compromising Christians will say, "Well, well, the Pope said it's OK. I don't care what the Pope says. The Pope is a man. I don't care what any denomination says, because it's run by men. I don't follow a denomination. I follow Christ. I follow his word, and that's the key: His word. And so it doesn't matter, you know, because people are people, sinful, fallible human beings. 2 Peter 2, verse 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You see, it's not up to you to interpret what God said. It's up to the Scriptures to interpret what the Scriptures say. You know know that Jesus, when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, he didn't just say, well, you know, these guys say this and these guys. He went to the law and the prophets. He went to his word to explain what happened in the New Testament, to what happened to him even. But we have people who, I believe this guy is a Christian. His name is Hugh Ross. He believes that the earth is millions of years old, that God put the soul into the first human being, all kinds of crazy things. Here's what he says in the Genesis question. Eighteen months later, I arrived in Revelation 22. During those months, I had read every page and failed to discover anything I could honestly label an error or contradiction. Some parts, I had trouble understanding, but that didn't bother me. I understood enough, just as I understood enough of physics and astronomy to trust what I was learning in my university courses. And then he goes on towards the bottom, he says, with some delays and more than a little wrestling with personal pride, I did make a transfer of trust, inviting God, the creator of the vast cosmos, to be my God, the master of my destiny through Jesus Christ, his son. He believes in Jesus, but notice that he said he understood enough about physics and astronomy to trust what he was learning about God's word. And so... As he read Genesis, as he read from Genesis to Revelation, he said, I used science to interpret what the Bible was saying. You see, that's a problem. Science will never bring anybody to faith, ever. It is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God that brings faith into our hearts, not science. Because here's what Hugh Ross believes. Hugh Ross believes that... Nature is the 67th book of Scripture. You know, there are 66 books. He added another one, a 67th book of Scripture, Nature. Now, I understand to an extent what he's saying, but believe me, from his other writings, he takes it further than it should be taken. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, by nature, you can see God's qualities, His power, His existence. Yes. You see, we can understand God's qualities by looking at an amazing creation, not diseased things. We understand the curse from that. But what Hugh Ross is saying is that we can interpret Scripture from science. No, 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 no. We get to see God's qualities, but you don't interpret Scripture with science. This is the mistake that happened way back when uh, the Scopes trial in 1925 was taking place. In the Scopes trial, many theologians were saying, we need science to help us understand the Bible. Do you know that everything that was used in the Scopes trial to support evolution today has been proven scientifically inaccurate and false? That's what happens when we use science to interpret Scripture. You would think we'd learn our lesson, but instead we have people today still saying, no, to understand the Bible, we need to look at science. No. To understand science you need to know the scriptures and then there will be no contradictions for either one but that's the only way it's going to happen one of the favorite things that these compromisers want to do is they are going to try and take things out of context and you have to understand that words need to be used in context. For example, let's look at one here from Answers in Genesis where it says, Back in my father's day it took ten days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. You see the word day is used there three different times and it has three different meanings. You know, back in my father's day, meaning a long time ago, back in a certain period of history. It took ten days to drive across the Australian outback. Ten days meaning ten days. 24-hour days. But it says during the day, which means a 12-hour period roughly. Three different meanings to the same word. That's why context is important. So you can't take something like the word day in Genesis and then say it means that in Psalms or vice versa. You know, one of the things that came out of the, the Reformation of Martin Luther was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And I believe that's true. If you use science, if you use church fathers, if you use history, you're in trouble. Scripture alone. All those other things are good to support, but not to interpret. Let me give you an example of how they do this. Psalm 93, verse 1. It says, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. The Hebrew word therefore, moved is mot. In other words, the world is firmly established. It can't be moved. That's like geocentrism. You know, the earth is the center of the universe. The earth cannot be moved. It can't be rotating around the sun. The earth is stable. It does not move. Is that what God's saying there? No, not at all. But people can take it out of context. Psalm 16 verse 8 says, "I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken." Again, the word there for shaken is the same word used for moved in Psalm 93, moat. Is the psalmist saying that he won't be moved from one spot? Not at all. He's simply saying the earth won't move from its orbital pattern. Likewise, I'm not going to be moved, shaken, moved from my belief, my, my, my philosophy, my understanding, my faith. So... You've got to be careful. Context is important or else you can twist things as much as you like. And today we've got many times I've had people say, so you probably believe the earth is flat, right? I was speaking in Colorado once and this heckler guy says, so is the earth flat or round? Trying to imply that creationists are flat earthers. And that creationists persecuted Galileo. He was right, but yet he was persecuted because they believed the earth was flat. No. Just go do some studying of history. Rather than believing everything they're throwing out there, study it a little bit. Galileo, who was a young earth creationist, wasn't convicted of heresy. He was convicted only of suspicion of heresy. He was guilty not of going against science either. He was guilty of going against a papal decree. He was going against the church. That was what he was guilty about. It was insubordination, you might say. It's crazy. Do you know that people did not believe the flat earth? There was a small group of people who believed the earth was flat back then. All you got to do is go look at some artwork and whatnot. You can see that throughout all of history, they understand, understood, especially in the Bible, that the earth was round. You see Greek statues and whatnot of people holding the earth in their hand, having their foot on the earth. The Bible even says in Isaiah and other places that the earth was round. It was a small group of crazy radicals, just like we have today, a small group of crazy radicals who believe the earth is flat today. It's called the Flat Earth Society. Now, here's the funny thing about this, by the way. Next time somebody tells you creationists believe the earth is flat, tell them, do you know that the president of the Flat Earth Society is an evolutionist? Yeah, he is. So be very careful about believing what you hear these attacks on Christianity. Let's look at this context a little bit more. Uh, let me ask you, how many days did they march the Israelites march around the city of Jericho? How many days was it? 7 are you sure it was seven days? I know it says seven days, but are you sure that that really means a 24 hour period? Maybe it was seven years. Maybe it was 7,000 years. You know, I mean, just imagine how tired they would have been. Maybe it was only seven hours altogether. I mean, you can't really trust what a day means, right? Or how about this? How many days was Jonah in the belly of a great fish? Three? Are you sure it's not 300 or 3,000? 3, or maybe it was 3 million? Why is it that we don't question what the word day means in Jericho or when Jonah was there or anywhere else in Scripture outside of in Genesis 1 and 2? Isn't that something? Nobody questions what day means anywhere in Scripture except in Genesis 1 and 2. That ought to tell you something right there. Well, let's go look at Genesis 1 and 2. And actually, before we look at Genesis 1 and 2, let's look at how the word day is used outside of Genesis 1 and 2. Do you know that word day, which is in the Hebrew, yom, it is used 2,291 times, 845 times it is used in the plural form, yamin. There are extra meanings other than a 24-hour day in some cases. Five usages altogether, which can be used for the word yom. Number one, it can be used as a time during the day, like, you know, during the day we drove across the Australian outback. Number two, it can be used as a 24-hour period, like it took me 10 days to drive through the outback during the day. It can be used as a vague concept of time. It can be used as a specific period of time, like the day of the Lord. It can be used as a period of a year. So people say, see, it can mean something other than a 24-hour day in Genesis. Ah, how not really, and here's why because the meaning of those days is determined by context and Hebrew grammatical rules. So when we read those, we know what it's saying. For example, outside of Genesis 1 and 2, do you know that that word day is used 410 times where a number is associated with it, like first day, fourth day, tenth day, whatever. Whatever. Outside of Genesis 1, it is used 38 times where there's evening and morning applied to it. It always means a 24 hour day. Just like when a number was associated, it always means a 24 hour day. When evening or a morning is attached to it, it always means a 24 hour day. 23 times there's evening or morning with day attached. So not evening and morning, but evening or morning attached. In all 23 times, it means a 24-hour day outside of Genesis 1. 52 times it appears with the word night with day. It always means a 24-hour day. In other words, the Hebrew grammatical rules here are also showing us that any time you associate a number, an evening, a morning... A night with the word day, yom, it always means a 24-hour day without any exception throughout the entire scriptures, not looking at Genesis 1 and 2. So let's take that rule here and let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and see if God might have been trying to tell us something here. In verse 5, it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning, a number, day, First day. In verse 8, there was evening, morning, number. In verse 13, evening, morning, number. Verse 19, evening, morning, number. Verse 23, evening, morning, number. Verse 31, evening, morning, number. I would say God is trying to say something. It's a 24-hour day. You know, even Dr. Dobson, he had a form letter that if you wanted to You know, ask him because Dr. Dobson, by the way, is one of these compromisers. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe he's a Christian. I think he's got some great material out there. I've used Dr. Dobson's material. I'm not saying don't, but what I'm saying is he's a compromiser when it comes to his faith in the Word of God, when it comes to science and creation. Here was a form letter Do you believe or support the Big Bang? his answer is this in the form letter yes and I see nothing in Scripture that indicates that God did not speak the universe into existence by this method nor do I understand why it is so threatening to my fellow believers the Big Bang if it did in fact occur was the creation event described in Genesis 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now note this for those who say such a notion contradicts Scripture I hope they will point out the specific verses that concern them because I haven't seen them. In other words, if you can't point to a scripture that says the Big Bang isn't real, he's going to believe in it. Guys, can you point uh, to a scripture that has the word abortion in it? Can you point to a scripture? No, Big Bang isn't there, but I can show you all kinds of scripture to say abortion is wrong. Likewise, I can show you all kinds of scripture that says the Big Bang didn't happen. Because the Bible in Genesis, the whole chapter 1 and 2, tells us it didn't happen. It tells us that when God made man, it doesn't say millions of years afterwards and so on. And, and worse yet, he goes on to say this. But the sun was not created until the fourth day. So was the first day really a day? I don't know. You see, what he's saying is this. The sun isn't created until the fourth day. Now notice, by the way, he had to take Genesis literally to even say this statement. But, if the sun's not created till the fourth day, what gave you evening and morning on day one and on day two? And on day three, how can you say the fourth day is a day because you can't have an evening and a morning, day one, two, and three, without the sun? That's what he was saying there. So, was the first day really a day? I don't know. Couldn't be a day if you don't have an evening and a morning because it's the sun that regulates that. Is it really? No, it's not. You see, guys, you don't need an evening and a morning with the sun. A flashlight could give you an evening and a morning. All you need is an earth that is in rotation and then a light source. You'd have evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. Now, again, I know it wasn't a flashlight. It was Jesus, the light of the world, the one who created all things. That light. Evening, morning. And so what that means is that the earth was put in rotation right away in chapter one verse 1, that on the first day of creation, the earth was rotating, spinning on its axis, period. And you had evening and morning, and then the sun comes on day four. But you see, in Revelation, it's the same way. In Revelation, there's no sun, but the Lamb gives us light. It's a 24-hour day is not because of the sun, it's because of the rotation of the earth. It's that simple. So was a day a day? Was the first day really a day? Yes, it was. And science would support that. But we have people like Hugh Ross saying, no, the sun only appeared. Who did it appear to on the fourth day? Man's not there. And what did God put it in? Because it says the sun is put in the firmament, and the firmament's not there till the second day. Evolution says the sun was here before the earth for millions of years. Well, there was no firmament to put it in. Could not be. If the Bible was written by men, Surely they would have corrected this too, wouldn't have they? I mean, they'd have said, well, evening and morning, the first day, second day, third day, oh, and then we'll put the sun there on the fourth day. No, if anything, I think this speaks more of the inspiration and authority of the word of God that the sun's not there till the fourth day, because if man wrote it, they wouldn't do it that way. This is God's word and God's creation. Zechariah 14, verses 6 through 7, it's also interesting. It says, It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord. Not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. You see, we look to the future as well, when there will be light a day without the sun. I prefer to believe, as Martin Luther said, he said, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. I love that. At least give God the credit being smarter than you. He goes on, for you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God Himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you, wantingly, to turn His Word in the direction you wish it to go. And that is faith. That is truth right there. Genesis 2.4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I've had people say, ah, you keep saying, all right, you use those Hebrew grammatical rules, and in Genesis 1 and 2, then day means a 24-hour day, but look at Genesis 2, 4, in the day God created the heavens and the earth, how long did it take God to create the heavens? Six days. Yet here it's saying, in the day God created, so day here means six days. Isn't that the context? Well, absolutely it is the context. However, notice the word day here in Hebrew is not yom. It's not yamin. It's bayom. And when you put that bay in front of it, that preposition in front of yom, it is translated as when throughout the scriptures. They only use a certain translation. I believe it's the RSV to point this out because it's the only version that uses it that way. Bayom, throughout all of the Bible, means when, not day. And so, again, another poor attempt. But do you know something? Many professors at these universities, what they do is they'll take and they'll sit your kids down and they'll say, I know you believe in creation, but look, you know, a day doesn't really mean a day. Look right here. And they'll use that version and they'll point it out. And our kids are going, oh, wow, yeah, day does mean six days there. You need to teach your kids They need to to understand these things. and Before they go to college, if they're not here tonight, get the DVD and let them watch this. Look at this example. In Genesis 2, it says that Adam and Eve don't eat of this fruit in the Garden of Eden because if you do, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Well, Adam and Eve, they ate of that fruit, did they not? Did they die that day? No, because Adam lived to be 930 years old. See, day meant long period. Had to have. Now, again, context is important as well as understanding what it really says. Almost all of your footnotes will even tell you when it says the day you eat of it, you will die, that the Hebrew literally says this, dying, you will die. In the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. In other words, it was a process. It's kind of like if you cut a branch off of a tree, you lay it out on a sidewalk, you know it's dead. Dying, it's going to die. It's going to shrivel, it's going to slowly die. And that's exactly what he's saying here. In the day you eat of the tree, the very 24-hour day that you eat of that tree, you will start to die. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why Adam could live to be 930 years. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 37, it says, On the day thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron, thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die. Thy blood shall be upon thine own head. This is what was happening when Solomon... There was a guy named Shimei who who basically was throwing rocks and things at David when he was fleeing. He he, he was against the king. And so when David's dying, he says, You treat Shimei according to your wisdom. And uh, so Solomon calls and he says, Listen, I'm going to let you live, but the day you leave Jerusalem, you're dead. And so what happened is... One day, Shimei has a a servant who runs away, so he leaves Jerusalem to go find his servant. Solomon hears about it. A few days later, he calls him back, and he says, "You, you know, you did your own death there because I told you what would happen. You agreed to it, so you're dead. And he kills him. And they say, see, that's the same context there, isn't it? It's the same thing with Adam and Eve. The day that Shimei left his death sentence was pronounced. He was a dead man. Likewise, the day Adam and Eve ate of that tree, he was a dead man. And this is why context is so important. This guy here, James Barr, he went and he wrote letters years ago to every Hebrew professor we could and asked them, What does day mean here in Genesis 1 and 2? All science aside, all religious views, just the Hebrew, what does it mean? Here's what he wrote. Probably so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew of Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the idea that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Or, to put it negatively... The apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely local, Mesopotamian flood, are not taken seriously by such professors as far as I know. Now again, this is years ago, long before evolution had really taken hold. Notice that our interpretation of scripture is beginning to change today, because you could find some today. But why is it taking hold? Not because the Bible led us to this understanding, but because our interpretation of science has led us to that understanding of Scripture. And by the way, science is always interpreted. The same evidence is interpreted by a creationist as it is an evolutionist, but we can come up with two different interpretations. That's why science can't interpret Scripture, because it's your bias that interprets the science, which means then it would be your bias that will interpret the scripture. There are no verses in the Bible where Yom means anything other than a normal 24-hour day if it is modified with a number like a second day, third day, fourth day, and so on. And so there is no way that Genesis 1 and 2, the word Yom, can mean anything but. Now some will say, well, the seventh day is continuing. God rested on the seventh, and so that day is continuing to this very day and they say that the word morning is metaphorical but that can't be proved but that's their bias that interprets it that way it doesn't say there was evening and morning the seventh day so they say it's still going to be consistent then did it ever really begin that's ridiculous but the only reason they're trying to get it to do that is to allow for evolution to take place John 5, 17-18 says this, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. See? To this very day, God is working. So the seventh day rest really isn't what you're thinking it is as a young earth creationist. God's still working. He's still creating. Well, is God still creating through evolution? Do you really believe that? Some of you might say yes. But if we look at the context here, we see that he's referring to his redemptive work, salvation. God is still continuing to bring people to faith every day. Go look at the context. But what they do is they take this one little verse and try and apply that to evolution? No, Scripture interprets Scripture. Go look at the context. It's salvation, his redemptive work, not his creation work. His creation work is finished. And Hebrews 4 makes a pattern to the rest as the kingdom of God. And frankly, do you know that each day of creation, and we'll talk about this later, can model a thousand years of history. We'll we'll get to that here later. And so that seventh day rest, Hebrews 4 models as our heavenly home rest. Not the period we're living in now. Genesis 2 verse 2 says, On the seventh day God ended His work which He had made. That's His creative work. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. Period. And that's in consistent understanding with what we see with the world around us and the rest of Scripture's. Hugh Ross even says that we can measure the heavens to see the Big Bang. He says, we see the red shift of light going out there. And so if we can see the end of the red shift of light, then we'll see where the Big Bang actually was. Because really what the red shift of light is, is light is moving away from us. It moves towards the red end of the spectrum. So they say, see, if it's moving away from us at some point in time in the past, it would have had to come together to one single point. That's the Big Bang. However, there are other biblical explanations that make much more sense. The Bible tells us very clearly that God stretched out the heavens at creation. In other words, he stretches them out. We'd see the redshift of light, not because of a Big Bang, but because of what the scripture says. That God created things more closely together than stretched them out. Which also explains, by the way, why you see starlight millions of light years away. But these astronomers, they keep saying we can measure the heavens. Can we really? If I was a betting man, I'd say we couldn't. Because look at this. In Isaiah 40, verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out or measured out the heavens with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in the measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has ever measured the heavens, it's saying. And it goes on and it says, If you can measure the heavens that God's covenant with Israel could be cut off. That God's promises would no longer be uh, uh, valid. I can guarantee you guys, you will never measure the heavens. Never. These compromisers are going to say, Brian, you're just not open-minded. You've got to be open-minded to these long periods. You're so narrow and it's so divisive. You know what? I I know somebody else who was narrow and divisive. Um, uh, What was his name? Oh, oh, Jesus. Yeah, broad is the way to destruction. You see, guys, I'm not saying that there aren't understandings uh, that I can say, okay, I, I can see where you get that from Scripture. But you see, then it doesn't contradict the rest of the Scriptures. And it doesn't contradict the gospel. Evolution, as you've heard in me talk why creation is important, creation philosophy and evangelism, it destroys the gospel. Let me ask you this, are these old earth creationists open to a young earth? I don't believe they are. It's not that we have to be open-minded, it's that we have to be open to God and His Word. Are you open to let Him rule your life rather than letting you tell Him what's true? Others will say, well a day could be a thousand years because 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 9 It says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Well, that's really quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. First of all, if a day is like a thousand years, like a watch in the night, I sure hope I don't get that watch. That's a long work day. And it cancels itself out, too. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And the evolutionists like to say, See, a day is a thousand years. Well, it says a thousand years is like a day. So there goes that idea. Well, I do believe a day is like a thousand years of history. It doesn't say a day is a thousand years. And by the way, that wouldn't even be enough time. You'd have to say a day is like millions of years. But the context here has nothing to do with the days of creation being a thousand years or evolution or any of that. What he's saying is God is not bound by time. That's the context. But I do think there is some symbolic truth to this, that a day is like a thousand years of history. Martin Luther and the Jews and many others have believed this because you can see that day one God separates... Light from darkness. The first thousand years of history is dominated by Adam and Eve, separating good from evil. Second day, it is the waters being separated. The second thousand years is dominated by Noah and the separation of the flood waters. Okay, the third day of creation, vegetation filling the earth. The third thousand years is Abraham filling the earth. The fourth day is the sun, moon, and stars. The fourth thousand years of creation is dominated by Jacob and his 12 sons, which in Joseph's dream and in Revelation we see are uh, referred to as the sun, moon, and stars. Fifth day of creation, birds and fish. The fifth thousandth year is dominated by the New Testament church beginning and the New Testament symbols of fish and birds, ironically. Day 6, man filling the earth. The 6,000th year, the last 1,000 years of history, has been population statistics booming. Filling the earth with man, growing in knowledge. Seventh day of creation was rest. And then we have Hebrews 4, a Sabbath rest for all God's people. A pattern is set there. If you want to know more about that, see my book on Revelation, all of God's word revealed. Uh, And it's amazing how that pattern is throughout the Bible in many, many ways. But nonetheless, a day is not a thousand years. Others will say, well, a day can't be 24 hours. There was way too much to do on the sixth day of creation. It says that God planted a garden. The trees then grew up. Adam was then created. All the animals were made. Adam was put to sleep. Eve was made. Adam wakes up and says, "At last." The Hebrew word "hapam." If I mean Adam took a nap, and it's like, finally, God, holy cow! I've had to wait a whopping twenty-four hours. They're saying this at last, that it, it simply means a long period of time. However, it's not true. ha pa'am means this time when you have that definite article ha before it. It's simply not true that it means at last. In any major translation, King James, NIV, NASB, New King James, you can look and see that it does not mean at last. But again, in order to get their theory, they're going to pick and choose a certain translation, a certain word, take it out of context. You look up in a Hebrew lexicon, and it will tell you that ha'pa'am does not mean at last. It means this time. In other words, when Adam was put to sleep, Eve was made, and Adam says this time. Big difference, isn't it? Genesis 2 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. You mean over 30 years, 40 years? No. Do you recall Jonah? When Jonah went to Nineveh, God made a vine grow up that gave him shade overnight. He created these trees mature. They already had fruit on them. All the creation, Adam and Eve, weren't created as babies learning having to walk and talk to to get through the garden, were they? No. No. God created everything ready to go, mature, all those things. But naming the animals? There's no way Adam could name those animals in a 24-hour day. Well, first of all, if you've seen my dinosaur's Ice Age pre-flood world, you know that Adam was much more intelligent than we are. They were more intelligent in the past than we are today. I know that's the opposite of evolution, but archaeology supports that. Anyway... You need to read your Bible very carefully because Adam didn't name all the animals. It says he named the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. It does not say that he names arachnids, insects, marine animals, things like that. As a matter of fact, marine animals alone remove 95% of the species of animals that we have today. 95%. And he also named kinds. He didn't have to say Great Dane Chihuahua, Great uh, um, Poodle. He said dog. And from the original created kind of dog, we get a variety of dogs today. That's science, not evolution. That's biblical. Again, if that's foreign to you, Dinosaurs, Ice Age, Pre-Flood World DVD will explain that. But what I want you to see is that of the 2 million known species today, 98% are invertebrates. And he did not name invertebrates. According to the scriptures in Genesis 2. The remaining 2% of animals we have today consists of 40,000 vertebrates. You remove 25,000 marine vertebrates, because he doesn't name marine animals, 4,000 amphibians, which he doesn't name, that leaves 11,000 species. And that's not kinds. You take out of the 11,000 kinds, it would be extremely generous to say that Adam named about 2,500 animals. That's it. 2,500. That means he could name one animal every five seconds, have a five minute break at the end of every hour, and get them all named in less than four hours. Boy, God really overworked him, huh? No, there wasn't too much to do on the sixth day of creation. The trees were planted mature. Adam named the kinds of animals. Very simple. Others will say the Hebrew Toledoth means many generations or long periods of times in Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, these are the many years, millions of years that God used to create things. Hugh Ross says that in his book. Well... I believe he has recanted of that now finally, but bottom line is even the lexicon that is quoted by Hugh Ross in his book says that this only means what is brought into being by someone in Genesis 2.4. It means the events that followed the creation of heaven and earth. The NIV even correctly says this is the account of. It's a record of, not these are the long periods of. It's an account, a record of. And the lexicons support that. But again, you'll have professors saying, look, these are the generations. That word generations means a long period of time. No, it doesn't. Go do your research. Go to any computer. Look up some Bible program where they have Hebrew and look at it. It doesn't mean that. These people are lying to you to get you to believe in evolution. It's just simply not true. Or how about the thorns that grew? We find fossilized thorns that are millions of years old, according to evolution, 410 million years old. Uh, Well, wait a minute. My Bible says Adam and Eve brought thorns about, but they've got thorns before Adam and Eve. Hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Guys, when we look at the six days of creation, isn't it interesting? You say, yeah, but there's just no scientific proof. I believe there is. If you know, My DVD on scientific evidences of a young earth will show you that. But first of all, let me ask you this. What scientific proof do you have that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? Oh, you don't have any, do you? As a matter of fact, even if you lived in Jesus' day, you would have had to have taken Mary's word for it, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, who of you, if your daughter came home and said, Dad, I'm pregnant, but it was the Holy Spirit, would say, uh, you're grounded, and if I ever see Joseph again, I'll kill him. That's what you'd say. Yeah, there's no scientific proof of it. What scientific proof do you have that Jesus could actually walk on water out to that boat to his disciples? Or that he could actually speak in a storm would just calm? Or that he could actually raise the dead? I mean, really? Hmm. How about his own resurrection? That's what we call Hermeneutics. And this is how we study the scriptures. And you know something? The same hermeneutics should apply to Genesis that we apply to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should it not? That's why I say this comes down to faith. You guys have faith enough to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and walked on water, but you don't have faith enough to say that he could create this world by speaking it into existence? Should not the same hermeneutics apply? Why is it that you have a double standard then? That you can have faith that Jesus can be born of a Virgin Mary, but you can't have faith that God could create in 24-hour days. Oh, because science doesn't support it. Like I said, it does support it if you take the time to do your research. But again, science doesn't interpret the Scriptures. God said, and behold, it was very good. Evolution would mean that very good meant death, disease, and suffering. It, on the sixth day, oh, it was very good. Look at all the disease, the animals dying, all these things that led up to Adam and Eve to come about. That's not very good, and that's not God's quality. So, an evolution says, well, where are we going to fit these millions of years in? It's got to fit in there somewhere, and really the only place that we can get it is somewhere between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. And this is where we get the gap theories. That there was a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and verse, Genesis 1, 2. Now, if you go look in your Bible, you can see that gap. It's a little blank space that's between every letter and every word throughout the rest of your scriptures. So why are they putting it there? Well, because they're allowing faulty science to interpret the scriptures for them. Another area they'll get it in is that, well, we'll put it in well, each day of creation could have been millions of years. No, each day of creation could not be millions of years because the plants are created on day three. How did they get photosynthesis then from the sun for the next million years? Yeah, it doesn't work. The insects aren't created till later, so they couldn't pollinate the plants for millions of years. Doesn't make any sense. Now, there are a lot of problems with this theory. Notice the scriptures don't say this. This is man's ideas being put into the scriptures. Do you know that the, uh, this gap theory was invented in 1814 by a Scottish theologian and a Masonic lodge member named Thomas Chalmers? It's not a historical position of the church. It's a man's idea people are running with. It violates many scriptures like Genesis 1-5, 2, 2, 2, 3 Exodus 20:11, Hebrews 4-4, which talks about in six days God made the heavens and the earth and all that was in them. It puts death before Adam's sin, because they say that there was all the death, the fossil record we see today, died, and then we see Adam and Eve being coming, about, coming about. So Adam and Eve didn't bring death into this world, like the scriptures would say. It has Satan falling before the seventh day, violating Genesis 1 and Ezekiel 28. People say, well, when did God create Satan? God created evil. No, God did not create evil. Evil is nothing. Evil isn't anything. Evil is the absence of good. Kind of like what cold. What is cold? Nothing. It's the absence of heat. Evil is the absence of God. You know, when God gave him a free will, he chose to go against God. He becomes evil, in essence. Satan was a cherub and he walked among the fiery stones in the garden of God before he had fallen. In other words, the garden of Eden has to be there when Satan is walking among it and he hadn't fallen yet. He fell after the seventh day of creation somewhere. Somewhere in there. We don't know exactly when. We know it couldn't have been too long because Adam and Eve didn't have any kids yet. And so if Adam and Eve are created on the sixth day of creation, they don't have kids when they're falling into sin. It couldn't have been very long, and I doubt that they disobeyed for millions of years or hundreds of years even to be fruitful and multiply. God's direct command. So it has Satan falling before the seventh day of creation. That can't be. The gap theory also accuses God of creating a world with suffering, calling it good, and it was very good. That can't be. Says the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew word here is tohu bohu. And it means unformed and unfilled. But many will say it means destroyed. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. It was destroyed. And the earth was formless and empty because it was destroyed. That's why we see the fossils. That's how they try and put it into that gap. Tohu bohu. Uh, Guys, it's not true. It simply means it was unformed, unfilled. That's all it means. And let me explain to you why this couldn't be that way. Because, again, what they're saying is God created the earth. He destroyed it. He makes a new one in verse 2. And that's the one that Adam has put on. Well, Genesis one twenty-eight as well. We're going to kind of tie this together. It says, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. They'll tie that in and say, see, this is support of that. And God said, replenish the earth. Replenish. Replenish means fill again. Because the first thing, everything was destroyed, so now it needs to be filled the second time. Again, tying those things together, they'll convince many of your children and grandchildren in Christian universities that maybe there was a creation before Genesis 1-2. It could not be. First of all, that word replenish is only in the King James Version. And if you look back in 1611 in old dictionaries, the word replenish at that time meant fill, as in the first time. So the King James isn't wrong, it's just that we're using King James English and back then that word meant something different than what it does for us today. And that's why all the other translations today will say fill the earth. You can go look this up on on a computer. You can go look at an old dictionary. It means fill. Not again, a second time. A flood destroying the earth between Genesis 1 and 2 with God recreating has many other problems as well. First of all, uniformity doesn't allow a global flood at any time. Evolutionists believe in uniformitarianism, that all these layers are slow in millions of years. Well, that would contradict it. So they don't believe in Noah's flood because that would say that that's how these layers got there. But yet they'll believe in a flood that the Bible doesn't talk about. Yet that would still contradict their idea of science anyway. Second of all, Satan fell and death existed in a very good world before the second creation then. Yeah, death existed before he made Adam and Eve, yet the Bible is saying Adam and Eve caused the death, so you can't have death in the first world if it's not even there yet for the second world. Death wasn't around. Third thing, it contradicts Exodus 20 verse 8. In six days God created and rested on the seventh. Remember, everything was created in six days, not millions. We've talked about these before, but the same same answers will answer some of these same arguments. And even Revelation 21, verse 1 would contradict this two creations. Because it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. If God created in Genesis 1-1 an earth and destroyed it, it would have to say, and the second earth passed away. But it doesn't, does it? You see, guys, you have to jump through so many hoops. You have to do so many things uh, to get millions of years into the Bible. And when you do, it only causes contradictions. The only way to make the Bible without contradictions is to leave it alone and take it as face value. And behold, it was very good, God said. And they say, well, very good. Why not use the word for perfect instead, then? Because very good could, you know, it wasn't perfect, it was just very good. So death could have been there. Because it's used for Noah. It says Noah was Tamim. Tamim is perfect. Noah yet also got drunk, didn't he? Yeah. Adam was created with the ability not to sin. And then after the fall, there was no ability not to sin. You and I, we cannot not sin, can we? I mean, the sins are covered, so we cannot sin in the sense that it's not counted against us. But the bottom line is, tamim, meaning perfect, doesn't mean any, anything better than very good. If Noah was tamim, but yet could still get drunk... Even if that word was used, it wouldn't satisfy them, would it? No, very good means very good. It means that there was no death, no suffering, no disease. But some will say, oh, but as long as we're talking about death, you guys say that death came about because of Adam and Eve, but it wasn't physical death that happened, it was spiritual death. I mean, Romans 5.12 says... Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Notice here that it says it came to all men. It doesn't say anything about animals dying, because animals could die physically before Adam and Eve. Because what happened to Adam and Eve was only spiritual death. So death passed upon all men. Spiritual death came upon all men. Because all men had sinned. So it was a spiritual thing only. Well, let's run with that heresy for a moment. That if it was spiritual death in the Garden of Eden, and the other argument they use to support this, by the way, is because Adam lived to be 930 years. Well, we already explained to you that the Hebrew says that dying you will die. He died that very day. Spiritually. Yes, he did. I agree. I agree. He died spiritually and physically. Dust you are, dust you shall return. That sounds pretty physical to me. And secondly, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead. For since by man came death, let's just run with the heresy for a moment and say that it was spiritual death that happened, like the compromisers will say. For since by man came spiritual death, by man also, speaking of Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. Let me ask you this, guys. What kind of resurrection must it be if it was a spiritual death in the Garden of Eden? Then it must be a spiritual resurrection as well, right? Yeah, that would compromise. That would contradict the rest of the New Testament. It goes on, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So as in Adam all died spiritually, so also in Christ all will rise spiritually. A spiritual resurrection only, and by the way, then Jesus only spiritually rose from the dead too. No. God is saying, A physical death in the Garden of Eden represents a physical resurrection of Christ, a physical resurrection for you as well. Do you know the Sadducees of Jesus' day did not believe in a physical resurrection of the dead? And Jesus himself rebuked them for believing that. That's why they were so sad, you see. They didn't believe in the physical resurrection of the dead. In order to twist the Scriptures in Genesis and say it was only spiritual death causes a contradiction in the New Testament and creates a heresy of a spiritual resurrection only. It had to have been physical death in order for this verse to make sense. Not only that, but 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is an enemy. That's not very good. No, Adam and Eve died spiritually and physically. You see... If they would have been able to eat from the tree of life, they'd have been able to live forever, not just 930 years. He was saying, no, you're going to die physically. In Genesis 3.19, it says, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. As I said, that's a pretty physical thing. They're going to say sin was there before death because Satan fell. So Adam and Eve's sin didn't bring death. Satan's sin brought death. Not at all. You see, God questions Adam and Eve and then Satan in the order of the fall, in essence. God curses in order of Satan, then Eve, and then Adam. Why? Satan is the one that tempted Eve. Eve then tempted Adam. So Satan gets it, Eve gets it, then Adam gets it. But here's the thing. Why then does Satan not have physical death? Well, because Satan was never a physical form like Adam and Eve. Satan and and angelic condemnation is way different than human condemnation. You see, you and I, we're never going to die. Physically you will, but spiritually you will live forever. Angels are spiritual. They're going to live forever. So physical death would mean nothing to an angel... And so, Satan's sin didn't bring death because it wasn't about that. Satan was cast out of heaven. Can Satan be redeemed? Not at all. There's no redemption for the angels. They don't get a a chance. They don't get the blood of Jesus to cover their sins. It's dealt with completely different. And so, the scriptures were written for man. And it was man's death, or man's sin rather, that caused death. And that was the curse of sin. So then Jesus has to come and die a physical death on the cross because that was the curse in order to pay the curse, pay the penalty in order for you to be resurrected and redeemed. And so, no, Satan's death or Satan's fall didn't bring death because death meant nothing. Physical death meant nothing to Satan. That's not how it works in the Bible all throughout would be consistent with that others will say well was Adam originally immortal then well 1st Timothy 6 16 it says God who alone is immortal isn't that a contradiction not at all the Greek echo is everlasting undyingness in God's case immortality is part of his very essence ours is based on God's moment by moment sustaining power as we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, as well as in Hebrews. God sustains all things. It is his life that gives us life. In him we move. In him we have our life and our very being, it says in Acts. And so, yes, I right now am immortal because of Christ and Christ alone. And so, again context is going to be very important well how about work before the fall they're going to say in genesis 128 replenish the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea they say the word subdue here in hebrew and dominion have a very negative connotation and so why would you use that in in a very good world that adam and eve were going to have to work subdue the ground they were going to have to have dominion over it that's negative Again, you're taking context from somewhere else and you're applying it to the context of Genesis. I can take the context from somewhere else and apply it to Genesis and it fits perfectly. For example, yes, dominion can have a negative term, as subdue can, but it also can have a very good meaning. In Solomon's dominion, Solomon, the same Hebrew word, had dominion and it resulted in Peace and safety in First Kings chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Yes, so God is going to have dominion. And it's peaceful. Heaven, God has dominion. It's good. And the Garden of Eden was, by the way, a model and foreshadowing of heaven. My book on Revelation also goes through that as well. So it can mean a negative thing, but it can also mean a good thing. If the right person has dominion. And the right person is subduing, God. And not only that, but you know, I've hardly worked a day in my life the last 12 years. Yeah, I'll tell you what, when I went into full-time ministry and serving the Lord, uh, it is not work. It is not work for me. I, sometimes I'm amazed that I can come here and talk to you guys because this is great. I'm not working right now. I don't dread getting up to do this. And so, work is also kind of an attitude. I believe that Adam and Eve love to go harvest the trees. No thorns and thistles to deal with, no weeding of the garden. I love the harvest time. And so, it's about attitude. Others will say, well, an increased pain in childbearing. That's a bad thing. And increased pain means that there was some before. Well, no, because a 0 to 60, is that an increase in speed? 0 to something is an increase. And not only that, but even weightlifters will attest to this, although I don't think this is the proper explanation, it's possible. Weightlifters and runners will say that there is a runner's high, that there's a certain level of pain that is actually comfortable and enjoyable. And so maybe there was a certain level that was enjoyable before. I don't know. But nonetheless, 0 to 60 is indeed an increase And they'll say there was no death before Adam and Eve fell, but yet plants were dying all the time. Really? I mean, at least to me, this sounds like a big stretch, but maybe for some of you, this is an important thing. Guys, plants dying is not death. We may use that in our terms today as saying, you know, oh, my plant died. But do you have a funeral for it? No, you don't have a funeral for your plants. I I even can go and see artwork on the walls where you've got beautiful pictures of dead trees, You know, things like that. Now, if plant death and animal death or human death is the same thing, why don't we have these beautiful pictures on our walls of some vulture eating a dead animal? Or some guy rotting away? Because it's a different kind of death. Plants don't have a brain. No brain, no pain, right? And plus, the Hebrew word for life, which is where we get the definition of what life and death is, is the Bible, the Hebrew definition there is, is nefeshkia. And it is never applied to plants or invertebrates, by the way. The Bible says the life of a creature is in its blood. Does a plant have blood? No, it doesn't. Insects, by the way, have a different kind of blood, uh, which may be why they don't have nefeshkia in them, biblically, either. But the point is, is the life is in the blood. All things that had nefesh were to be destroyed in Scripture. That's what it's talking about in the garden as well. And by the way, in the dinosaurs' ice age pre-flood world, we also see that the atmosphere was different before Noah's flood. The fossil record would confirm this. Even science evolutionists would say it was different billions of years ago. I just you know disagree with their timing. But that could make snakes non-venomous. We've seen that scientifically today. Spiders they do not have nefesh kaya, but even so you know because people say well a spider has a web so it would catch you know things and it would cause them to die that would be death well like the snake was changed maybe a spider was as well but we also have orb spiders and things like that that actually catch pollen in their webs and eat pollen maybe that happened before the fall but because insects don't have nefesh kaya, perhaps insects could die before the fall of sin. We don't know. Nonetheless, there are some very good possible explanations to how that would work. In Romans 8, verse 20 and 21, it says, "...the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God." they say the creation wasn't cursed by sin, only man was. You see, man was cursed but the creation was left alone so evolution could continue to take place. Really? No, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And it goes on and it says it's waiting to be delivered from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In Acts 3, verse 21, it says, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. If the creation wasn't brought into bondage, if the creation wasn't cursed, what is it waiting for to be restored from? From what? From very good? No. The creation was cursed, along with man, as Genesis 3 clearly tells us thorns coming up, and so on. Not only that, but if death before the fall was good, like they're trying to say, then in Revelation we should see the same situation in the good heaven. There should be death there in heaven as well, if there was in the Garden of Eden. But why then do we see in heaven, as Isaiah and whatnot tells us, that the lion will eat straw? Yeah, Isaiah 11, 7 says, And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Or verse 6 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and with leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. I would say that if death was good, that we shouldn't be able to see that at all. And as far as going back again to Satan falling before the Garden of Eden was made, it says, Thus saith the Lord God, in Ezekiel 28, that you, Lucifer, seal up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in the Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering until sin was found in you. To say that Satan fell before the Garden of Eden is absolutely a contradiction to Ezekiel 28 here. No question about it. And it goes on to say in Job 38, verses 4 and 7, it says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And all the sons of God, and that word there is angels, ben Elohim, shouted for joy. So when God created the foundations of the earth, the angels were shouting for joy. They were were, were excited. They were happy about this. Until sin was found later in Satan after the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1.31 again, we see God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That is not a world in which Satan could have fallen in. How about cell death? People say, well, you know, when we grow, our cells die. And therefore, there would be death for us to grow before the fall of sin. What, Adam and Eve didn't have cells growing and whatnot? I don't Maybe they didn't. But even if they did, that doesn't contradict the scripture. Because you see, cell death could happen before the fall. Cell death is what we call apoptosis. It's a programmed cell death. It stops faulty cells from multiplying and causes development. Whereas something called necrosis is like a cancer cell. They're two completely different things even medically today. And so apoptosis would be able to take place. That's just cell growth. It isn't dying. Uh, you know, your, your cell itself uh, wouldn't have the kaya by itself either. So you could grow. You could do those things without that being a contradiction. Others will say, well, germs. How could you have germs before the fall? Even today, deadly germs today have a mild variant that is harmless. And many of them have these symbiotic relationships. They're good. You know, we have bacteria in our stomach that cause digestion. That's a good thing. So bacteria aren't all bad. Germs aren't all bad. They could have, because of the curse, there can be genetic things that cause them to deteriorate. You see, before the fall, God was holding everything together. He withdrew some of his sustaining power. Some of those bacteria and germs can now become harmful. And by the way, that's not creating. That's just what we would call uh, natural selection in some sense. Creationists believe in natural selection. It's called the curse, where things wear out. Let's look at the second law of thermodynamics for a minute, because this is very important. Many people think that the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says entropy, things wear out. They fall apart. Usable energy becomes less usable. In essence, they say, well... That must have come about then after the fall. The thing started falling apart after the fall. I don't believe that's true. You see, I mean, to to an extent it is. The second law of thermodynamics has good things as well. To say it's just entropy is an oversimplification. The second law also has good things. For example, when we breathe, we have high and low air pressure that allows us to breathe. When you walk, we use friction that allows us to move that's a good thing and that's the second law digestion is a second law of thermodynamics so I believe that the laws all of the laws that is governing this universe were created in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right there that's when it was done the second law was made right there in the beginning God created the laws were set into place what happens though is that God probably simply, after the fall, withdrew some of the sustaining power that we see in Colossians 1.17. We also see it in Hebrews, that God is holding all things together. I like to look at it as, as atoms in a rock. If you would take a rock, there are atomic particles in there. Do you know in atoms there's movement? Quarks, protons, electrons, neutrons, there's movement. Those things are spinning. Where's the movement? Movement is energy. Where's the energy coming from? In a rock. Yeah. It's God who fills the universe. God is in everything. He fills everything and he sustains it. He holds it together. Can you imagine what would happen if the atoms, the movement in those atoms would stop in a rock? What would happen? You know, in my mind's eye, I kind of picture all of a sudden my rocks going to dust. But that can't be because, frankly, dust is made up of atoms. All matter is made up of atoms. I have a tendency to think that what 2 Peter talks about is going to happen, that the heavens will go away with a great noise. You see, the Big Bang hasn't happened. It's a coming. Everything's going to go away with a great noise. It's going to go away because God's sustaining power... I think in some senses the spinning of those atoms even, is going to be withdrawn. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein will dwelleth righteousness. But you see in the Garden of Eden, I think God had his full sustaining power. When Adam and Eve fell, he just withdrew a little bit of it. And things could begin then to deteriorate. And then we see the negative effects of the second law of thermodynamics. There were no negative effects to the second law prior to the fall. We can even see that God can add his sustaining power. For example, the burning bush of Moses, never burned up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his sustaining power perhaps. So it is not a problem to have the second law of thermodynamics today, and it did not come about after the fall. It must have been there right from the beginning. What about the death of Christ's connection here with Evolution. All Old Testament sacrifices pointed to a literal death that had some very important meanings to them, didn't they? Death throughout all of Scripture is a very important thing. Christ was sinless, perfect. Animals were not. And that's why Hebrews said that there was a need for Jesus, a more perfect, a better sacrifice, one that could be done once for all. Carl Sagan asked, where is this loving God? I don't see a loving God with this world filled with death, disease, and suffering. Where is this loving God? I'll tell you where that loving God is. He was there from the very beginning all the way up to the end. You see, he, he warned Adam and Eve, don't do this because this is what will happen. Adam and Eve disobeyed. They're the ones that went away from God's presence. And death, disease, and suffering came in. And then God said, oh, man, I've got a plan, though. And he had it from the very beginning, even before the creation. That he knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. That wasn't a surprise to him. That's why in the spiritual realm, the spiritual laws, why God has them, how he has them, I don't know. I just know they're there. That he said, I will die for you. I will take the curse of the Genesis garden of sin and I will take it upon myself. Because think about it. What was the curse? Oh, thorns were going to grow. So what does he do? He wears a crown of thorns for you. He says death is going to reign. So what does he do? He dies for you. He says you're going to have to work the ground by the sweat of your brow. So what does he do? He sweats blood for you. And the very tree that caused that curse, it says then that cursed is every man who hangs from a tree. He hung on that cross, taking the curse, the punishment that you all deserved on himself. That's what Jesus did. That's the curse. Hanging on that tree. He conquered it, rising from the dead, so that when we die, we too can have new life. But if evolution is true, and death was here, physical death, long before Adam and Eve, that means physical death has no spiritual meaning, it has no purpose, it's just something that happens, it's just natural. Therefore, Jesus' death would be just natural, it's just something that happens. And his death then certainly could not bring atonement and forgiveness to you today. That's what millions of years means. But if Adam and Eve were real people who fell into literal death disease, or literal sin, which caused literal death, disease, and suffering, A, I know why there's death, disease, and suffering in this world today. Because man's sin brought it about, not God. And B... I know then that Jesus' death has literal meaning and purpose. That is why this is important. And that is why we must not compromise. Now, I don't want you to lose your head over this. All right, you, you need to trust Jesus. You need to trust his word. Some of you might be saying, I just don't know what to believe. Listen, you believe the Bible, that's it. Trust Jesus in all his word. What is Jesus, by the way? The word of God that became flesh. Jesus is the word. And if you're going to doubt the scriptures, you're going to twist those up. What you're doing is you're twisting up Jesus and doubting him. You know, in Genesis 7, 19, another thing that they try to do to use the scriptures to uh, contradict the scriptures ultimately or to get people to believe in millions of years is they'll say Noah's flood was not a global flood. It was just a local flood over in Mesopotamia somewhere. Well, that's interesting because, you know, if we look at Genesis 7, let's just try and see if a kindergartner would read this, if they could get a local flood out of it. Let's look what it says. The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and cattle and beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things, and the fowl of the heavens, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and that they that were with him in the ark. Do you think all every high mountain, do you think that might be trying to tell us something? There is no way you can say that Noah's flood was a local flood by just looking at the scriptures and getting it from there. But Hugh Ross says, oh, I got a local. I read that, I get a local flood right away. First of all, he says, all doesn't always mean all. For example, in Luke 2, verse 1, it says, There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Hey, were they taxed in America then? No, they weren't. See, all doesn't mean all the world. Actually, it does. The word world is where the key is. The Greek here refers only to the Roman Empire, not the earth. There's a different Greek word for the earth than there is for the Greek world. And the word world here is the one that's used for the Greek world. In other words, Caesar did take a census of the entire Greek world. If Noah's flood was just a local flood, how about this as well? Why did Noah build an ark then? Why didn't God just say, hey, Noah, move? (laughs) I mean, why did God put a rainbow in the sky saying, I'll never do such a thing again? Wouldn't that make him a liar? Because we've had local floods. You know that Indian Ocean tsunami, Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, and many others. Why did God take birds on the ark? Surely they could flap their wings to get to the next dry hillside. Why would you even, if you're going to build a boat, build such a big one? Why not just a little one? That would be silly. By the way, you know what Hugh Ross and those people say? Well, he probably had them build a big boat so that he could use it as a platform to, to preach from. Guys, if that's not grabbing at straws, I don't know what is. And not only that, but how could the waters go above the highest mountains when water seeks its own level? It can't pile up on top of the mountains and be a local flood. It would go down to the valleys and fill them before it can pile up on top of the mountains. Not only that, but we see Second Peter chapter 3 and Matthew 24 uses Noah's flood as a symbol of end times judgment. If it was just a local judgment, then it could be a local judgment in the future. Or it even gets its own Hebrew word to distinguish it from other floods. Mabul in Hebrew, kataklusmos in in Greek. So when it's talking about floods, we know when it's Noah's flood because it gets its own word. To distinguish it from local floods. Because there is no way to make this a local flood. But Hugh Ross would say, but Noah was only describing from his view. So in his view... All the world was getting covered, all the highest mountains, because that's all he could see. The text in Genesis 7 here is revealing things that there's no way that Noah could have even seen. He he couldn't have even known about it. In Genesis 8-2, the fountains of the great deep closed. In Genesis 7-21, all birds and land animals died. He wouldn't be able to know that. He couldn't see the fountains of the great deep opening and closing. This is God's perspective, God's story that we're reading here. In Genesis 7 19, it says, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. That word covered there is Kesach. They say that Kesach means residing upon running over or falling upon. Therefore, the waters were simply running over or falling upon the mountains. It wasn't really covering them. Again, context is everything, but also the Hebrew word. Yes, Kesach can have three meanings. But in the flood account, it is combined with the verb gabar, meaning to prevail or rise, giving no other meaning than to cover up, to fall upon and rise. Hugh Ross once said, well, high isn't in the original when speaking of the mountains. Well, he was wrong. It's there. Any computer program can tell you that it is. And the geography of Mesopotamia is also a problem. How could the waters of a local flood rise 600 feet to get the ark to Mount Ararat? That's a problem. 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6, really sums it all up. It says, but these scoffers... They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. You go back and read Second Peter 3. He's saying, in the last days, scoffers will come, and what they will do is deny Noah's flood as covering the mountains. Second Peter, Jesus is telling us, that people would deny Noah's flood as a global flood. And here it's happening, and people are saying, well, I think that could be right. It could be a local flood, not a global one. When Peter said scoffers would say that. Others will say, well, there's no way Noah's ark could be built. It would be way too big. No ark like that could be built today. It would fall apart. A wood ark, no way. Actually, history proves that argument wrong. Uh, truth is, nobody in our modern day has ever tried to build an ark that big. But second of all, we have history telling us that boats that big were built. Usher described one that had 1,600 rowers, 800 on each side, with 1,200 fighting men that was four to 500 feet long. We also see Athanasius tells us and uh, told me and, and others that the ship, there was 420 foot long one, 57 feet wide and 72 feet high in 244 BC now by the way Noah's Ark was about 450 feet long 75 feet wide and 45 feet high very similar here is a picture of one as well that was destroyed in World War II so it's no longer here today but the pictures are are of it today showing that boats clearly could be made that would be that big the fact is that no boat over 350 foot mark has ever been tried to be built in modern-day shipbuilding, out of wood. Because we use iron and, and steel, and it's just better to do that. We can even make them bigger than Noah's Ark today. And what a weak argument anyway. Maybe the pyramids don't exist. We can't make those today. So maybe they don't really exist. Just a weak argument. Others will say, well, all the plants would die, all that salt water and whatnot. No. First of all, the waters weren't as salty back then. They gradually get saltier. Second of all, we see even Darwin himself showed that seeds sprouted after being soaked in salt water. So that's a weak argument. Others will say, well, you know, you guys say that the earth is 6,000 years old, but there are gaps in the genealogies, and those gaps prove that it could be long periods. Well, no. Even if there were gaps, guys, you would have to have, you know, Even with 250 generations, you'd only get it to be 10,000 years old, 10 to 15. And so if you want to believe in the gaps, fine. A 10 to 15,000-year-old earth, that doesn't destroy the gospel. And it certainly doesn't allow evolution to, to, to fit. But I don't believe there are gaps in the genealogies. But let me give you some examples because there are gaps, but you understand when they're supposed to be there. 1 Chronicles 3, 10, has these names. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham. But now in Matthew 1, 8 through 9, it gives a genealogy. And we see the same Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. And then Ahaziah is named Uzziah here, which we know is the same name. But then it skips Joash, Amaziah, Azariah and goes right to Jotham. That's a gap. Yes, it is. In one place it is. The Hebrew ab means father or grandfather. It can mean either one. And therefore, how do you know that this is when it says he's the father of, that he's not talking about the grandfather? That would be a gap. Well, that's true. But the word ben means son, grandson, or descendant as well. So not only do you have the problem with father, you've got the problem with son as well. When it says he was a son of, it could mean the great-grandson. True. But, again... None of the examples where there are gaps mention the age of the father at birth. Also, Matthew, we know, clearly intended there to be 14 names, three groups of 14 names, to be a pattern, a symbol of something there. So he wasn't necessarily trying to give you an an accurate chronology. It's to show the generations, a, a symbol there. And finally, and most importantly of all, there is always an accusative particle, et, marking the direct object of the verb, begat, when ab means father, not grandfather. So we know when it's supposed to be a gap or when it's not supposed to be a gap by looking at that alone. And not only that, but we see Jude 14 confirms that Enoch was the seventh from Adam just like the genealogies tell us. So to add even 10,000 years, like I said, you need 250 missing generations. In Luke 3.36, by the way, there's an extra name, Canaan, that isn't in Genesis. Well, the oldest manuscripts don't have that. Even Josephus didn't mention it either, in case you hear that. We also have Habakkuk 3.6. It says, The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. The ancient mountains. Age-old hills I mean, that must mean that the earth is millions of years old, right? Well, 2 Peter 3.5 says they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed. See? Millions of years. 6,000 years? That's long ago. That's ancient. 1,000 years is ancient. You know, you can even take classes today and study ancient history. Are they talking about, you know... Millions of years ago? No, they're not. Those are relative terms compared to man's lifespan. That's all it is. And in Hebrews 1.1, it says, In the past, the same Hebrew word for long ago used in in, uh, 2 Peter there, In times past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But these are the examples that these liberal professors and people like Hugh Ross use to take in kids and say, Look, long ago. That, that means a long time ago. See, millions of years. But they don't show you Hebrews one, 1 using the exact same word when God is speaking to our forefathers. Matthew 11.21 If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. The exact same Hebrew word again. So be very careful because the devil is out there and he is trying to trap you. Satan wants to ensnare us, but the bottom line is is that it is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, that can keep you from being ensnared. That's the truth of the matter. Thank you, and have a wonderful evening. God bless, and thanks for coming.